Welcome to our weekly podcast. Today we're in week three of a message series called 31 Days of Prayer. Throughout the month of January, we're talking more about how we can grow in our prayer life. We're focusing on prayer as a conversation. We're also participating in a 31-day prayer challenge as a church family. So as our search team interviews potential candidates for a youth and young adult minister, I'm encouraging the rest of our church to pray for this person, to pray for our youth, and to pray for the impact and the influence that we have on our community. I want to encourage you to utilize the weekly prayer guide that's provided in your bulletin. You can also find it on our weekly newsletter by email. Or just pray about whatever God puts on your heart as it relates to the youth in our church. If you look at the back of your bulletin, you'll notice that I've entitled today's message, Praying for Healing and Restoration. As I prayed about this series, this is a message that I felt we all needed to hear. We're living in some very challenging times. Sure, as a church, we're experiencing numerical and spiritual growth. Personally, I look forward to gathering and worshiping with all of you every single week. Yet the world that we live in is hurting. Several countries are one move away from being at war with a neighboring nation. Here in the United States, there's been a rise in crime, especially in large cities, Unemployment is still high. Many people live with a sense of uncertainty about the future. Several families here at OCC are struggling with health problems. There are broken relationships, work-related issues, and difficulty in raising kids. I've heard several of you say that we need healing in our country and in our homes, and I couldn't agree more. And we need healing in our government. We need healing in our cities, in our schools, our neighborhoods, and in our families. In many ways, we even need healing in the church. Second Chronicles 7.14 is a verse that I've heard many times over the past few years, and for good reason. This verse says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. So the Old Testament book of First and Second Chronicles are historical narratives, where First Chronicles focuses primarily on the life of King David. Second Chronicles spends most of its time on Judah's later kings, specifically the good kings. In chapters one through nine, a lot of attention is given to David's son, King Solomon, and how he asked God for wisdom in leading his people, and how he built the first temple, which was meant to be a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. Words like exile, return, repentance, and worship are major themes throughout the book. Now, we don't know who the author was. Some people believe that it was Ezra, but we don't know for sure. But we do know that this book was intended to cause remembrance and hope for God's people in Judah. Remembrance about where they'd been and where God has brought them and hope for the future. As Christians who are living in the 21st century, We have the awesome privilege of reading and learning from this book in a way they did not. While God's people had some good kings, they also had some really bad ones. This is something we've talked about in the past. The books of Chronicles are ultimately used to point us to our perfect and forever king, Jesus. They also encourage us in our faith by reminding us that God always keeps his word. He always keeps his promises. The writer of 2 Chronicles wanted to reunite God's people around the true worship of God. And friends, I believe the same can happen in our lives today. 
Second Chronicles 7.14 is an incredible promise. But a question that we need to address today is this. Who is this promise for? Was it only meant for God's people a few thousand years ago? Or is it for all of God's people throughout all time? The first few words in this verse, in this promise, says, If my people... So, if my people who are called by my name. So, who are God's people? Well, Jesus actually answers this in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. This is a great passage. It says, As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So these are God's people. If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, then you are part of God's family. You are God's people. If this describes your life, then you're the my people that God refers to throughout his word. And all of God's promises are for you. This verse continues by reminding us that God's people are those who are called by my name. Now, the New Testament refers to those who are called by God as disciples or followers of Jesus. It was Kyle Eidelman, who's the teaching pastor at Southeast Christian Church, who wrote an entire book about how true Christians aren't just fans of Jesus. They're followers of Jesus. You know, they're not just people who show up on Sunday and sit in a chair and listen to a message and then go home. No, they're people who follow and live their lives for Jesus. They learn from Jesus to live like him. As a follower of Jesus, would this define your life? Are you willing to boldly share with others about how you are a follower of Christ? Someone who's been adopted into the family of God and has been called to live for him. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we live in a world where everyone seems to be really bold about who they are and about what they believe. Yet it seems like many Christians are remaining silent as they sit on the sidelines. And to be called by God means that we actively live for God. Throughout the Bible, God's people have always been identified as those who trusted in God, those who did his will here on earth and who unapologetically lived for him. It shouldn't be any different today. Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. So friends, those who are truly called by God are not ashamed to live for Jesus. With that being said, I believe the promise that we read about in Second Chronicles 7.14 is for all of God's people throughout all time or until Jesus comes back. But this verse does give us four conditions if we're going to experience the promise in our own lives. So that's what I want to talk about today. Today I want to unpack four conditions for this promise, conditions for experiencing God's healing and restoration in our lives. If you're taking notes, the first condition is this. Admit that I'm not in control. Admit I'm not in control. 2 Chronicles 7.14, the first part of the verse says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. So the first condition to this promise is humility. It's admitting that I'm not in control. Humility towards people is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's putting the needs of others first. 
Humility towards God is a little different. Humility towards God means that we don't approach him arrogantly, flippantly, or disrespectfully. It means that we don't make demands of God as if he were our own personal genie. Humility towards God means admitting he's the one who's ultimately in control, not me. Now, God's word instructs us to humble ourselves, not to pray for humility. I think this is interesting. In other words, we're to learn humility from Jesus and then just do it. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humility is a choice that we make. Although humility is a choice, I think it's often difficult to understand. It's difficult to live out at times. So what I want to do over the next couple of minutes is read a few verses that help us understand what humility towards God looks like and how God responds to a humble heart. Psalm 25 verse 9 says that he, being God, guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. So the promise is that if I'm humble towards God, he's going to guide me. He's going to guide me down the right path. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2 says, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts who tremble at my word. So the promise, if I'm humble towards God, he's going to bless my life. James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If I'm humble towards God, the promise is that he's going to give me the strength that I need to live for him. Now, this is just a short sampling of verses that help paint a large picture about what it looks like to be humble towards God. Humility is the first condition for experiencing God's healing and restoration. It's admitting that I'm not in control. God is. The second condition, if you're taking notes, is ask God for help. Ask God for help. The second condition is prayer. Now, given that this series is all about prayer, specifically prayer as a conversation, I bet you were wondering when we were going to talk about prayer today. Well, here it is. Second Chronicles 7.14 continues by saying, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. So in week one, I emphasize the importance of praying strategic or kingdom prayers. And these kinds of prayers aren't rapid-fire prayers, but instead require us to sit down and to think more deeply about what we're asking God to do. Strategic prayers are prayers about God's mission and about His purpose, about His will in our lives. And while I believe that these are the most important kinds of prayers, God also cares deeply about our personal everyday needs. He wants us to experience his healing and restoration in our lives, in our homes, in our community, in our country, and around the world. Here's just a few scriptural truths that'll help you when it comes to praying about healing and, and restoration. The first two truths come from John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. Now, this is such an important passage about prayer. John writes, Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. So we know that John was writing about a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And the first truth about prayer, this condition of prayer, is that God wants us to pray about everything, especially healing and restoration. 
I don't know about you, but I find that it's hard to pray about personal needs sometimes. Uh, Maybe because we convince ourselves that that's somehow selfish. We have to remember that prayer was God's idea. He wants us to come to him and to ask for whatever is on our mind, whatever's on our heart. Prayer is also a way in which we learn to trust God more. So if we don't pray about personal needs, we're never going to learn to trust God. The second truth about prayer that comes from these verses is that we should pray in Jesus' name. So when we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, we're trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. And we don't get everything that we ask for in prayer. I think we all understand that. Sometimes what we ask for is just not part of God's plan and part of his will. But we can and should pray about everything. When we pray about our needs in Jesus' name, we're trusting that God's plan for our lives is ultimately what's best, regardless of the result. We're trusting that God is able to sort things out according to his will and his purpose. For the next truth about this condition of prayer, I want to read from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. James wrote, Are any of you suffering hardships? Then you should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. So the third truth that goes along with this condition of prayer is that we should get other people to pray with us. I found that it's, it's often easy to pray for other people. You know, when you have someone in your life that's hurting, a friend, a relative, a coworker, it's easy to pray for other people. But it's not always easy to allow others to pray for me. But this is something that God wants us to do. This is why being part of a Sunday school class or a growth group in the church is so important. You know, Sunday morning or right now as you're listening to the podcast, this is a monologue. But when you're part of a group, it's a dialogue. You're able to ask questions. You can pray for one another. When you're part of a group, you build relationships with other believers. You learn how to study and apply the truths of God's word together. You can also come to our elders for prayer. Elders are the spiritual leaders or the shepherds of the church. In fact, the primary role of the elders is to spiritually lead the church through things like teaching, prayer, and caring for the congregation. So if you need healing and restoration in your life, they would love to pray with you. You're, you're never going to offend one of our elders by asking for prayer because that's what they're here for. A fourth truth comes from Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. Um, This is a great verse about the importance of two or more people agreeing about something in prayer and how there's power in that kind of unity. Matthew 18, verse 19 says, I also tell you this, that if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, then my Father in heaven will do it for you. So this fourth truth is agree, trust, and expect an answer. Agree, trust, and expect an answer. When the church comes together in agreeance and in prayer, we can expect that God will answer. So referencing this verse, one commentator wrote that in the body of believers or the church, the sincere agreement of two people is more powerful than the superficial agreement of thousands. And that's because the Holy Spirit is with them. So it's assumed that two or more believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit are going to pray according to God's will and not their own. That's the whole premise of this verse. And that's why Jesus said, My Father in heaven will do it for you. 
God's answer might not be right away or in our timing, but there will be an answer. So agree, trust, and expect an answer. A fifth truth comes from Ephesians 6, verse 18. Paul wrote, Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all the believers everywhere. So this fifth truth, something that will help us to pray for healing and restoration, is that we should keep praying and don't give up. God wants us to be persistent in prayer. He wants us to persevere in prayer. So even when times are tough, during those seasons where we need healing and restoration, we can be persistent in prayer because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. We can keep praying because we know that God will never fail or abandon us. These are all important truths that I believe will help you pray for healing and restoration. Whether it's in your own life, in your marriage, in your family, your community, in our country, or something going on around the world. One condition for experiencing God's healing and restoration is prayer. A third condition for healing and restoration, if you're taking notes, is that we should seek God, not a miracle. We should seek God, not a miracle. This is huge. Second Chronicles 7.14 continues, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, so that's the first condition, humility, and pray, that's the second condition, and then third, would seek my face. So seek God, not a miracle. Seek God, not just a blessing. A lot of people want to experience a miracle or blessings in their life, but they don't truly want to know and follow Jesus. For this third condition, we must seek to know and serve God with everything that we are, regardless of what's happening in our lives, regardless of what's happening around us. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 in the New Testament says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So seeking God is not meant to be a second-tier priority in our lives. Seeking God is a serious pursuit. It's meant to be our primary focus. More than anything, God wants us to seek him, to know him, and to live for him. Psalm 14, verse 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29 But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you'll find him if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. So friends, if you're stuck in a rut, whether it's with prayer or in your walk with Christ, make it a point to start seeking God. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added or given to you as well. Beginning each day in the word and in prayer, we've talked about this so many times, That's a great way to seek God first. You're starting the day seeking God. I want to challenge you to do this throughout the rest of the month. The fourth condition for experiencing God's healing and restoration is turn my attention from the world to the word. Turn my attention from the world to the word. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 continues by saying that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and here it is, turn from their wicked ways. I want to define two words from this condition. This will help us understand this a little more clearly. The first word is the word turn. 
So he says, turn from their wicked ways. This word turn carries the same meaning as the word repent, which means to turn 180 degrees and turn back towards God. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, if you hide your sins, you will not succeed. But if you confess and reject them, you'll receive mercy. And then James chapter 5 verse 16. This is a verse that has become familiar to many of us over the past couple of months. James wrote, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So turning from the world to the word means being open and transparent about your sins, about your struggles, your shortcomings. It means daily confessing and repenting to God for forgiveness. You know, repentance for the Christian is not a one-time thing. It's meant to be a daily thing. This also means learning to confess your sins to other believers so that you can experience healing in your life. The second word that I want to define is the word wicked. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So what are we called to turn from? Well, we're called to turn from our wicked ways. Now, when you first hear this word wicked, I'm sure a number of things come to mind. Things like murder, stealing, abuse. I mean, the list goes on. And wickedness can certainly refer to evil acts, but it can also mean something else. It can also mean forgetting God altogether. In this context, it means leaving God out of the equation. It means putting God in a box or trying to live outside of God's will. So to turn our attention from the world to the word means turning 180 degrees back to God. And this is such a crucial step if we're going to experience God's healing and restoration in our lives. So when we admit that we're not in control, when we're humble towards God, when we ask God for help, so we pray for healing and restoration, when we seek God and not just a miracle, you know, we make an effort to seek him, to know him, to live for him. And when we turn our attention from the world to the word, it means we repent of our sins. We learn to confess our sins and our struggles to other believers. When we do these things, the result is a threefold promise from God. He says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sins, and I will heal your land. Friends, today we need to pray for God's healing and restoration. And this is a very real need in our world, in our country, our community, our church, and in our own lives. 